Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Ben Loftus from Harrison Consoles. First of all, brands in songs. Yes, how many songs have big brands that are mentioned in them? Well, Bloomberg did a study to find out. They looked at the top 20 songs over the last three years. It's 280 songs. They found 212 brands that were mentioned. Now, what are the top ones? Well, you won't be surprised. Number one is Rolls-Royce. Number two, Ferrari. Number three, Hennessy. Number four, Porsche. Number five, Chevrolet. Number six, Lamborghini. Number seven, Bentley. Number eight, Cadillac. Number nine, Jordans. I guess they mean sneakers. Number 10, Mercedes. Number 11 is Rolex, and number 12 is Xanax. (laughs) And mostly we have cars in there, and it's kind of funny because Xanax is the one that really doesn't belong, but it's mentioned in a lot of songs, apparently. Now, most of these come from hip-hop songs. However, Taylor Swift, Katy Perry, Megan Trainor, and many other country stars especially mention brand names in their songs. So this is something that's happening. And the interesting thing is, for the most part, this isn't paid for a placement. This is just mentioning the brands because they're cool or perceived cool by the artist's audience. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. The second edition of my Social Media Promotion for Musicians Handbook is now available on Amazon, iBooks, Ingram, and a bookstore near you. Also, check out my courses at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Now, from the People Will Buy Anything file, Fender has come out with two very unique guitar lines. The first is what they call the Front Row Legend Esquire, and this is made out of old seats from the Hollywood Bowl. Yeah, Hollywood Bowl got rid of their 100-year-old seats in 2014. Fender bought them up, And there's actually a pretty good reason. They were made of very old, 100-year-old, Alaskan yellow cedar. So what they did is they made Esquires. Not too many of them, but they made some Esquires out of this old, distressed lumber. You get what looks like a very distressed piece of lumber in the shape of a Fender Esquire. And it has the seat number emblazoned into it. So you have number 144 and 568 and et cetera, et cetera. Pretty unusual. The interesting thing here is how expensive these guitars actually are. $12,000 a piece. $12,000. Wow. A lot of dough. If that isn't enough, Fender also has come out with their Pacific Battle Guitars. Six Strats and five Tellies all made from the aluminum fuselage of a B-25 Mitchell bomber from World War II. Pretty amazing, I know. I don't know why someone would want to buy an aluminum guitar, first of all, let alone aluminum that's really old. (laughs) Maybe it sounds better, I don't know. It's broken in, it's vintage. But anyway, these guitars are going for $8,800 a piece. $8,800 a piece. It's a lot of dough. It just goes to show you that sometimes people aren't buying instruments for what they sound like. And really, they're not even buying them for what they look like. They're buying them because of the novelty involved. And that's cool because that's a whole part of the industry that kind of lives on its own. 
and isn't in the reality of most players. Most players will buy a guitar because they want to use it. <laughs> and most collectors buy it because they want to hang it on the wall or just for bragging rights or even for an investment. Although I'm not so sure how much guitars are worth the investment these days. I think their price has kind of peaked. That being said, if you want something unique, Fender has two very unique offerings in their front row legend Esquire and their Pacific Battle Guitars. My guest today is Ben Loftus, who's been with Harrison Consoles for 18 years and has seen the evolution of the big hardware desks through that time. That said, he's one of those responsible for Harrison's innovative Mixbus and Mixbus 32C digital audio workstations, which may be the best-sounding DAWs on the market. Ben told me all about how important the hardware consoles actually were in developing the Mixbus software in the course of our interview. We spoke via Skype from the Harrison offices in Nashville, Tennessee. Where are you from, Ben? Well, originally I'm from uh, Mississippi. I'm from Starkville, Mississippi, where Mississippi State University is. And I grew up in Jackson in my grade school years. And then I went to high school and college at Mississippi State University. And I went to school to become a mechanical engineer and got my degree in mechanical engineering. That's interesting how you you make a jump from there to audio. Well, you know, it's a... it's always been in my blood. I worked my way through college at a little hi-fi shop. Uh, I walked in there one day, and um, one of the salespeople played uh, a cut off a dark side of the moon through these B&W little desktop speakers, and I just suddenly became an audiophile. Like in that moment, I became like you know a crazy audiophile afflicted person, and uh, that was when I was in high school, I guess. And when I started college, I I hung out there so much, they finally gave me a, a job. And I sold a bunch of high-end speakers to these uh, professors around town uh, that had, you know, plenty of money and plenty of time and, and inclination to get into these esoteric kind of things. So we would sit around there and listen to speakers, put all kinds of different music on and listen to different speakers. And that was how I blew, uh, you know, four years getting paid for that. It was really great, yeah. <laughs> a really great time in my life. Um other than occasionally vacuuming the floors, I had very few responsibilities except talking to these guys and listening to music, you know, and occasionally maybe carrying a heavy pair of speakers out to their car or to their house or whatever. And I was really into the really technical side of it. The guy, the guy that owned the shop was a, uh, was also a professor himself. And, uh, he was a real engineer's engineer, went to Georgia tech and, um, you know, he was, he came out of there in the fifties and, uh, had done all the, you know, a lot of the military, a lot of these guys in the audio industry from that time, this kind of ties into our talk about Dave Harrison. So many of them came from the, uh, the military because that's where all the work was being done with radar and sonar. And, uh, that's really audio stuff at a different wavelength. You know, I mean, it's all figuring out frequency responses and impulse responses and, and that kind of thing. So anyway, he was that kind of guy. And, um, so as part of my job, you know, I had to replace drivers when speakers would blow up, and then I would I learned to um, bias and align cassette tape machines, not multi-track machines, but cassette tapes, you know, and mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know, replace phono cartridges, and you know, just stuff like that. And uh, I really wanted to get a job. I tried to get a job at PV, and I tried to get a get a job at Baldwin Piano, and I I wanted to kind of be in the music, the 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 uh, product 
development or engineering side of uh, of sound and music, but I just couldn't I couldn't make one of those opportunities happen straight out of school, and I ended up uh, working at a first at a factory in Mississippi that was really a terrible drudge or drudge of a place to work um, making these electric motors. And then uh, I became a, uh, a welding engineer. I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, and I became a, design, uh, a designer for these towboats up there and then eventually became kind of a welding engineer. And I worked there for several years at this shipyard, but I, I kept my eyes open, and eventually this, this spot opened for a, a programmer uh, at this audio company in town that I had never heard of. They're, they're called IED, and um, they made these high-end industrial audio systems like like airport announcement systems and stuff like that. But they also had a studio in the building because the company also had a, a voiceover. Anyway, it was just it was a typical thing. It was an audio company that was spawned by some guys that uh, were musicians and recording engineers but had found a more lucrative business in kind of this industrial audio thing. So anyway, I, I went there to show up to interview and um, – at this hi-fi shop I worked at, we had all these really high-end speakers, Duntech and Dunlop and B&W and all this kind of stuff. But we also had, you know, some kind of, uh, like clips. We had the, we had all the horn-loaded clip stuff. And so I had bought a pair of clip horns, which is the big, the gigantic, you know, speakers from the 70s that that uh, are earlier than that, way earlier than that. But my pair came from the 70s, and they sit in the corner of your room. And they're just loud as all get out. I mean, yeah. you put Led Zeppelin on those things and it just sounds, <laughs> you know, like it was supposed to. I mean, that's what they were, that's what people were listening to at the time, you know? Yeah. So it sounds like it was supposed to. And anyway, I really liked those. And I went to this, um, I went to this interview and the software guy that interviewed me, he said, hey, what do you know about programming? I said, well, you know, I did a little bit in school. I'm really into it. I like programming. Uh, it probably didn't sound like I was the guy for the job, but, um. Then we started talking about speakers. Well, he had he had the Altec Voice of the Theater, which was you know the antithesis, which was just the the. Uh, it's not high rivalry. Five. You know, it's like the yeah, it's like <laughs> the football rivalry of the time was the Clipshorns versus the Altec Voice of the Theater. You know. Yeah. And so we got a big laugh out of joking about that. And next thing you know, we're great buddies. And I started there, and uh, that kind of got me. That got my foot in the door of, of programming uh, in the audio industry and. Uh, strangely, that was around the uh, one of the reasons they were hiring is this was around the uh, year 2K, the Y2K bug, and they had this old software that was in airports and convention centers and uh, uh, casinos and places like that all around the world, and it was written in very old computer code that did suffer from this Y2K bug. So the first thing, one of the first things I had to do was delve into this ancient software written in basic and pascal and all these you know really decrepit old languages and fix some of that stuff but once once i got past that and we got past those projects i got to do some i got to do some really cool stuff i did some stuff uh, that nasa ended up using i ended up i made some stuff that um uh they used over at the fort knox tank driver school hmm. and uh and some really cool casino automated uh, uh sound systems that they use at these casinos to to support their shows, you know, their sort of uh, entertaining entertainment kind of things. Mm -hmm. And so, anyway, that was that was how I got my foot in the door. And then, and then I became a um, I came, became really interested in this new operating system that came out called BIOS, which was a it was, it was some guys that had split off from Apple back when Apple when Steve Jobs left Apple. Yeah. Uh, there was 
kind of a group that, that peeled off around the same time and started making this new operating system that was just going to wipe the floor. I mean, just really be awesome. And uh, I forget all the details, but I think when, Apple, when, when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, they presented that to him and said, look, you can take this, and this thing is great. And we were, anyway, I was, I was getting really into that thing. And um, to make a long story short, Harrison was also using that operating system. And so on this board where all these, these proponents and um, uh, all, all these guys that were really into this, into this operating system were hanging out, you know, they said they were looking for somebody. And I'd been doing a lot of graphics work for the, uh, this industrial audio company. And it looked like that was going to be a perfect fit. So I moved to Nashville and I started working on uh, the, the product that became uh, the software that drives Harrison's big film consoles. It's called ICUS. Yeah. And uh, that uh, was really successful. Um, Harrison has been around a long time. The company's been around about 40 years. And, uh, I, of course, I wasn't around for the whole thing. I just got there right around, uh, what was that, 2001, I guess. Mm-hmm. No, 2000. Anyway, um, they had already been on top of the world a couple of times when I got there. You know, they, they, had, a, they had huge success in the mid-70s to mid-80s with the analog music consoles. Oh, yeah, I remember well. I worked on Harrison consoles <laughs> back then. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Sure. Cool, man. 32Cs, MR4s, I remember MR3s, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was all, you know, before my time, really, but of course, I've seen them come through the factory occasionally when they're getting fixed or, you know, upgraded or whatever. And uh, they were on top of the world, man. I mean, uh, Pro Tools, of course, is dominating now, but there was a time when if you went to a studio, it was more likely than not that there would be a Harrison console and... Uh, either an MCI tape machine or a Studer tape machine, and that was that was what everybody had. Well, didn't Dave Harrison design the MCI consoles? Yeah, he designed the MCI consoles, and then uh, he had this this. Well, he started off with this idea for this the inline console design, where you have a tape machine, and instead of having having your console split into two pieces or having two pe- two consoles, one where you have all your mics connected that feeds the tape machine. And then another one where the tape machine feeds back to another console, uh, he came up with the idea of sort of merging that into one thing. So you had one channel strip, and that one channel strip could send out to the tape machine, and you could EQ that going out to the tape machine. And then when you were ready to play back from the tape machine, you could switch the EQ over and EQ that playback track. And he had a bunch of cool automated features uh, that he wanted to implement to make all that workflow a lot better. And uh, Jeep Harned, who was the MCI guy, I guess just didn't want to invest that much. You know, he didn't think it was, he didn't think it was necessary. So Dave took all his ideas, these inline console ideas and all this automation that he wanted to do. And he started Harrison with that idea. Got it. See, I never knew that. I knew that they split off. I thought it had to do with the fact that Jeep was going to sell MCI because it wasn't that much afterwards where Sony bought it. And then, of course, it went into the ground. Sony didn't know what to do with it, but that was good for Harrison. Yeah, that basically matches the parts of the story I've heard. Um, I, I think he, my our part of the our our side of the story yeah. <laughs> that's been passed down to me is uh, is simply that they had an engineering 
falling out. You know that Dave really thought people wanted this this advanced console, and and Jeep really thought people were fine with what they had. Oh, uh, okay. Well, it makes sense. Uh, MCI consoles at the time were half the price or less than you know your typical English console, the Tridents and the Neves and things like that. So consequently, you'd see them everywhere, especially like the, uh, well, the 400 series originally and then the 500 series after that. But you'd see them everywhere, and, and it was a, a price thing. So if it would have gone more automated, then the price would have gone up, and I could see where that would be a, an impediment, you know, a sales impediment perhaps. But really, SSL proved a few years later that's exactly what the market wanted. That's right. Well, you know, Dave Harrison had that idea for the this uh, 32 series console, and when I say automation, what I mean is it had a lot of it had a lot of switches to change the routing, and SSL really glommed onto that, and they they took that and ran with it, and Dave actually took off, and he he decided to take it the next step and make an an automated automated console, meaning you press a button and all the settings come back. Now that took him a long time to develop that thing. Um, Again, it's a little bit before my time, but it, I know it was in the 80s that they were developing that Series 10, yeah. which was the truly automated, computer-controlled automated console. And that console came out around the same time that SSL was really starting to get rolling pretty well. And they would the story I've heard is they would take that console to trade shows, and the Series 10 was... A, a computer-controlled automated console, meaning you could you could sit, you could click a button and say go back to where I was, you know, yesterday at lunch, and every knob would go back to its previous setting. Now there weren't that many knobs; there were um, there were like three knobs, and that could be the low EQ, mid EQ, high EQ. You know, you had little switches to choose what it would do. Yeah. But the point is, all of the signal flow that was happening behind that thing was recallable instantly. So you could click a button and instantly recall every setting that you had yesterday. In, in, a, in an instant, the SSL guys came out and they had this thing called Total Recall. And Total Recall means that they had a computer that would look at all your knobs and, t and, and, and register their settings. And then it would pop up on a screen. Like if you said, well, tell me where I was yesterday at noon. It would show you one at a time each channel. Well, here's where you put the EQ. Here's where you put that aux. Here's where you put the, put the you know, this, that, and the other thing. So you'd, you'd switch all the buttons in and out and turn all the knobs until it said, okay, you're matched. And you ran across the whole console, and um, that was a total recall. Well, you know, that was, that was laughable compared to the Series 10. But a couple things happened. Firstly, they, the brand name Total Recall really great was great. <laughs> you know, it really stuck. The other thing is the Series 10 was a million, like um, $1.2 million in 1989 dollars. Yeah, <laughs> was, yeah, yeah, you know, right. Very advanced. But that's why it caught on the film industry, though, because the film industry had deep pockets. They could afford it, and, and it did what they wanted where nothing else would. And I live in Burbank, so I can walk to Warner Brothers and Universal and Disney, among other major media facilities. So, And they all had, and they still do in many cases, have you know some sort of Harrison console for the, the dubbing stage. Yeah, that's right. And that, that was one of those things in the audio industry. You've got to find people who need your product, you know, yeah. not just want it. So the, uh, the music, that Series 10 was really cool. There were a few people who needed it. There were a lot of people who wanted one, 
but they couldn't justify that. But the film guys needed that yeah. because they were running tracks and it would change from a gunshot one moment to, you know, violins the next, you know, and, and then a door slam and then a, you know, a motorcycle engine or whatever. And so they're constantly having to, every scene by scene, it's having to change what it did and they needed that technology. So yeah, they had a, they were on top of the world with that, um, with the analog stuff. And then they had a really good run with, uh, live consoles. They made a, they custom made a console for uh, Shoko, and I kind of came in right at the tail end of that. I, I saw, I think I saw the very last one of those consoles actually go out the door, and those were huge, man. They were on all the all the biggest tours. U2 yeah, yeah. and Madonna, you know, back in the day, uh, took those consoles because it was a, similar to the Series 10. It was it was an analog signal path, but it was completely digitally controlled and reca- instantly recallable, and so that opened up all kind of new opportunities for these live shows. Now we take it for granted, you know, a digital console. Well, of course you can recall the settings, but man, nobody did that back then. They, they didn't, it, it really took an advanced production team to know what to do with that kind of stuff. And those few big time touring crews needed it and the uh, film guys needed it. So, um, you know, that, 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 again, that kind of put us on top of the world. And then we really, uh, we're, we're, we're on top of the world with the, um, film consoles starting about 10 years ago and it, it is starting to it's starting to reduce now because the fact is people don't need those anymore everybody wants a film console you know yeah. if you can have one, you want it but it's not necessary like it was 10 years ago uh and, you know 10 years ago pro tools was really only just beginning to get into these hollywood stages that were really they had to be up and working all the time and they would bring in, you know, 10 Pro Tools systems to play out the tracks for a typical movie uh, for multiple reasons. Um, but it was a bunch of machines, and something had to sum all of that together. Yes, right. And if you're going to do the summing, then you got to do the panning. And if you're going to do the panning, then you got to do the EQ. And if you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So uh, you just had to have one. Uh, I guess these days you probably can run three or four or 500 tracks on a big Pro Tools system. And if you can do that for music and dialogue and effects then uh, it makes the consoles less necessary. Where we still have some success is uh, really the big facilities, the Sony and Universal, where they bring in an entirely different Pro Tools machine machine for the dialogue and the music and the effects. And uh, in that case, again, as soon as you're summing two or three of these things together, then somebody's got to do the panning. And if you're doing the, you know, and then it, it, it just quickly snowballs into, well, you got to have the whole console. Right, right. So in a very few of these big places, uh, we're still on top of the world there. Um, but that's not necessary for every movie these days. So, um, you know, the, the, there's no question that the film console business is slowing down. But Harrison, as I said, we've this is not our first rodeo, uh, although although I've only been there, well, 18 years, I guess. Um, that's still fairly new for some of these guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Right, right, right. <laughs> and they've seen it all. They've seen it all. You know, St- stuff comes, stuff and stuff goes. So right now we're uh, we're really focused on this mix bus thing, which is uh, my my baby, and it's a DAW. You know, it's. Uh, Let's step back before we get into that. I'm curious about the rack products, and especially the 832C. How did that come yeah. about? Because that's a very unusual product. You're talking about the filter box? Yes. Filters? Yeah. Well, uh, that is an unusual product. And um, 
we have the luxury at Harrison because we've been around a long time and we have lots and lots of designs and we kind of know how to make stuff. You know, we make big consoles, we make little stuff, we make all kinds of things in between. Um, that we can make, we can make whatever we want, really. And um, we had a lot of people tell us that uh, the filters, you know, were the magic of that 32C. Not to everybody, but there was there were a lot of people who, who just thought that was the magic. And we had already made this lineage microphone preamp, which has eight mic preamps in it. And so um, one thing that we, we always wished we had changed about that was it didn't have any good, it didn't have meters on every channel mm-hmm. and it didn't have the filters. And a lot of people said, well, that's the sound, you know, you're, 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 you've got the eight, you've got the 32 series mic preamp there, but you know, the, they think the filters were the sound. So um, we just thought, well, that's okay. We can, we'll just make something and solve both those problems. So we, we added on an additional rack product that's eight channels of high and low pass filters that are basically the same circuit from the 32 series console. And uh, it's just eight of them in a row. So when you take the lineage and you, and you connect it into that thing, now you've got eight channels of, of vintage Harrison Mike preamps and then eight channels of the high and low pass filters and then some better metering. And it's it's kind of a little package, you know. Yeah. Okay. I get it. I get it. All right. Let's go to uh, Mixbus. A couple things that I want to tell you first before we get into it, because I have lots of questions here. I have uh, lots of subscribers in a closed Facebook group, which is all for my subscribers. Actually, the interesting thing is someone posted not that long ago all about Mixbus, saying this is the best thing you know you'll ever hear, and if you buy it and you don't like it. I will buy that version from you. Wow. <laughs> he was doing a, a guarantee, a price guarantee. So when I got to try it, which is just recently, I got to say within the first five seconds, I knew. <laughs> That's all it took. It's like, oh yeah, this is better. <laughs> it was big. It was fat. It was round. It was analog. It had an analog feel to it. And you could tell immediately, immediately it was there without doing anything. It was just audio flowing through it so what's the deal how does that happen <laughs> thank you so much for saying that <laughs> we we worked really hard on it well I, I i guess the deal is we had been doing this for a long time before we made Mixbus. uh i mean i can give you a specific example this is my favorite anecdote i like to tell about it is um those film consoles the film consoles in hollywood when we originally sent those out, they were analog. So there was a control surface in the du- in the dubbing stage that's just a big mouse. You know, it had mm-hmm. faders, it had motorized faders, motorized joysticks, all the knobs for the EQ, the sends, and everything. But there was no signal processing going on in there. There was just one cable that ran back to the con- to the uh, machine room, and that was controlling these racks. I mean, six foot tall racks. You know, as far as the eye could see, to control two or three hundred channels of analog signal processing. And they're playing, you know, mag tape uh, into these channels and and making movies that way. Well, then the digital revolution came and they changed out all those mag machines for digital playback machines of various flavors. And it was time for the consoles to become digital. So we rather selfishly decided that instead of making a whole new console 
and trying to sell a whole new console and potentially letting these customers look at some other options, <laughs> mm, yeah. we decided we'll go in and we'll just replace the, the back end with a digital back end. So all the racks would come out and be replaced. Instead of analog racks, they'd be digital racks. So the studios would get the digital processing that they needed to match up to their digital processing, their digital playback, and, you know, the reduced noise floor. I mean, they were getting up into these hundreds of channel accounts. I mean, regard, it doesn't matter how good, you know, your system is. When you're adding 100 channels, the noise builds up. Yeah. And uh, as these things got more and more complicated, that was really becoming a problem. So we made a, a digital back end. But what's weird about that, that I, I can't think of any other example anywhere else, is there were mixers who mixed on Friday afternoon or Saturday and they were turning a knob and it was an analog sound. And then they had to come in on Monday morning mixing the same picture and turn the knob and it had to sound the same. Mm, yeah. I mean, they literally, we changed it out. You know, their, their management, <laughs> their management changed it out from under them from analog to digital. And, you know, maybe I'm exaggerating. They might have not done it in one project. Maybe they maybe they spanned a couple of projects. But the point is, they had their muscle memory. They had their ear training. They These were really high-level professional guys that were used to their analog back-end to make these very high-end movies in the, really some of the most expensive rooms. I mean, the rooms at places like, you know, Sony and Universal, I mean, there are a lot of great music studios in the world, but or control rooms, I mean. But, well, you know, I mean, you've been there. Yeah. This is really high-end Yeah, stuff. yeah, right. No, it's another, I mean, another level. A oh, whole, whole different level. Yeah. So this is those guys. You know, those guys with those ears. They're mixing with the analog system one day, and then they have to come in and mix on digital. And it was our job to not screw them up. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh. it had to, the knobs had to all operate the same. When you sweep, it had to sweep at the same rate and have the same, you know, and sweep smoothly and, um, and it had to sound analog. So that was a really hard product to launch. It took a lot of engineers quite a long time to, to dial that in. And once we had done that once, then we knew how to do it. Hmm. And I'm not sure that anybody else ever had to do that. Yeah, right. So sit down at Mixbus. Um, it's not a million dollar console. It doesn't do everything that the million dollar console does. Um, you know, it doesn't have the horse. It's got the horsepower of of one computer, whereas our big big consoles have, you know, dozens of computer computers back there doing all the processing. Uh, but it was written by the same guys who had learned all those techniques going from the analog into the you know making a digital version of an analog console. So we had already figured out what not to do. You know, to make something sound digital. We, we needed to make it all work so that it still sounded analog, which is, um, you, can't, you can never make anything sound better. The point is not to make it sound worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You well, know what I mean? And so we took those consoles and we, we made the digital engine sound like the analog engine. What's the difference between Mixbus and Mixbus 32C? Uh, the, the difference is a very small. The, really, the only difference in the product is uh, the 32C has a um, bigger, blown-up 
EQ. Maybe a better way to go about it is just kind of to tell you the story. I mean, when we yeah. first launched Bixbus, we had a big advantage. We had launched these previous consoles, the Series 10, the Series 12, the MPC, the LPC, uh, and those consoles had computers that controlled them and, and knew every setting, every compressor, every EQ, everything. And, you know, occasionally we would get those settings files from users, either because they had a problem or because they wanted to show us something or because they sent a console in and we had the settings or whatever it was. We, you know, we, we could see those settings or we would ask them for them, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, we were able to compile a tremendous amount of information. So we know, for example, that a three-band EQ and a high-pass filter will do 90% of what anybody ever did to make a great record. Makes sense. You know? Sure. Yeah. And, uh, and com- the compressors, three different compressor settings, one that's kind of a really low ratio, very fast release, another one that's kind of a, a middle ratio with a program-dependent release, and then another one that's a really fast, high-ratio limiter type thing. With those three settings, man, you can do like 95% of every compressor everything anybody ever tried to do because you're doing the task. You're doing the task, you know? It's yeah. sort of the task that an LA-2A you know, leveler does. Um, or a XYZ, you know, name yeah. your name your thing. Leveler mode is great, by the way. That's awesome. Oh, it's I mean, yeah. you put it on everything. Yeah. yeah. Which everybody, of course, everybody likes to do that. So we we knew that. We knew that everybody put that setting on everything. <laughs> you know, we had those documents. We had those. We had that proof that this is what real guys do. So we we took all that information. We made we made Mixbus. We we made a three band EQ with a high pass filter, a very simple compressor. And, um, you know, from our standpoint, that was kind of the end of the story. It was kind of like, well, let's just, let's just dip our toes into this DAW thing. You know, let's just put the, the minimum stuff that gets the job done for most people and see if it takes off. And man, we made a big splash. I mean, Mixbus version one, we had no idea how crazy that was going to go, um, on some of these forums and things. We, we really honestly were unprepared for it, uh, with a version one product. I guess we should have anticipated that since we're Harrison, you know, I mean, we, we probably should have anticipated how that was going to go a little better, but we, we didn't realize we were uh, uh, going to get adopted by so many people so fast. Um, but what did happen out of that is a lot of people didn't understand why we didn't make the 32C EQ because there was already a, a plug-in out. In fact, one of the reasons we made Mixbus was Universal Audio had chosen to model that 32 series EQ. Yeah. And uh, also Dan Kennedy over at uh, Great River made a 500 module of that 32 series EQ. Yeah. And it was kind of a reminder to us that, that music guys still knew we were around. You know, they still knew that. They knew that sound. They still wanted that. So anyway, Mixbus was kind of our, you know, I don't know. I don't know what you can say. First product, first foray into that kind of back, back into music, I guess I would say. And um, a lot of people didn't understand why we didn't make the 32C EQ in there. And they also asked us, well, what, con- what console is it modeled on? Well, we weren't in the business of modeling stuff, really. I mean, we made, I guess you could say we modeled those analog consoles, but the point is we make the consoles. We don't model stuff. Yeah, <laughs> we, yeah, we, right, right. Yeah, we make the first ones. So Her- the, the Harrison Mixbus was kind of the first of a new thing. But a lot of people really expected that 32 series EQ. And then we had a we did eventually pick up a few of our our fans, our, our our older Harrison experienced users, and they knew what they knew where to turn each of those knobs with a 32C. 
And they kind of made a convincing argument that we should do the 32C EQ. So we did actually model that circuit and and put the 32C EQ in. And then we also kind of sweetened the deal by adding some additional buses. Mix, mix bus itself is sort of intentionally limited to eight uh, stereo buses, which again was sort of enough, you know, for most music projects, um, you can have as many tracks as you want, but then you had these eight sort of effects and or subgroup buses. And and from our research, we you know, we thought that would be enough for 90% of the projects you'd ever do. So we kind of sweetened the pot with 32C and we went out to 12 stereo buses, which really does accommodate, you know, the, the vast majority of what people are trying to do. That's plenty. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for a music project now, I mean, you wouldn't take this into a film stage, you know, yeah. that's not what it's for, but, but, uh, for recording a band and, uh, subgrouping some things and, and, and sending some things out to reverbs, you know, it's, it's, great it's more than enough it's it's everything you need right under your fingertips and so basically that's the difference 32 30 uh, mix bus is sort of the entry level uh that does 90 percent of everything you want to do if you want to go bigger than that then you might have to add some plugins or whatever and then 32c has the full four band eq with the high and low pass filter and now you're talking about very rarely needing a, a plug-in eq who is the customer for this well we've we've found that we have um two or three different very different customers one customer that we knew we were going to get was uh the really the really techie computery um uh you know L linux open source kind of person and there's a reason there's a reason why i say that it's because um uh, we started the Mixbus project. And I, I guess I could go back and tell the story. But maybe it's not important, but um, we started it as a collaboration with this open source group to make a totally different product. And Mixbus sort of came out as a side effect of that. And and we published it almost at their request. Uh, I'll, I'll just tell you a little piece of the story. Yeah. So we're making we're working on these film consoles, and they needed a destructive recorder to match the old mag machines they used to record to. And the idea is, at the end of the day, you would record you you would record your whole mix to this mag machine, to this this tape multi-track tape machine, and it had your music and your dialogue and your effects, and it had the stereo mixes of all that and the five dot one mixes, and you know it's it's quite a lot of tracks. It could be forty eight, sixty four tracks or something like that that you're mixing at the end of the day for the film. And they would print that to this machine, and then the director would come in and he would say, oh, you know that spoon clank is it's really blowing the mood in scene 47 and um the door slam really needs to be more ominous and darker in scene 96 you know and so they'd rewind back they would get all their effects back to the settings they used to have and they just punch in that short little section and then they'd hand over the tape done you know they don't mm -hmm. have to roll through the whole half movie again you know they had that was their workflow so we made this product because pro tools would not do that they had a Pro Tools had a really terrible implementation of this um, of this destructive recording mode, and we came out with that and we launched it at NAB, and we did that by collaborating with this open source group. But at the same NAB show, Pro Tools came out with version eight, and they had fixed the bugs oh, yeah. <laughs> that had plagued people for so long <laughs> that everybody said, "Oh, they'll never get around to fixing that." You know, we've asked them a hundred times, they'll never do it. Well, they did it, and. So really, that product, our product, was 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 kind of dead in the water, 
And um, the side effect of that was the open source guy said, hey, why don't you make us an EQ plug-in and a compressor plug-in? And we spent a little bit of time doing that, and we realized that didn't feel like a console at all. It just didn't feel, just adding an EQ plug-in didn't mix. It didn't turn it into a mixer, you know? Yeah, yeah. So we, or I guess I should say I, really, I got this B in my bonnet to sort of put a real mixer into a DAW. And so we sort of made this, I mean, it was honestly just kind of a proof of concept, uh, but I had spent so much time on it, <laughs> we, we kind of had to launch it. And uh, so we launched this mix bus thing. And so part of our user base is that are those people. Uh, the other part of our user base are the guys that really wanted an analog console. You know, they want an analog, um, they want that magic of that analog sound. And that really describes almost everybody starting from 2000, you know, 2010 until now, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that's just a really desirable thing. Uh, and then maybe there's a third group, which are sort of like studio guys that can't get what they need done with other tools. Because Mixbus, I mean, every, every workstation is a little different. Everybody does, you know, a few things a little different. And Mixbus has a couple of tricks up its sleeve that um, are just our things, you know, uh, mm -hmm. the way the editor works, the way you can layer stuff, the way the crossfades between the uh, different clips work. Um, you know, the, uh, for example, you can you can take a plug-in and put it post-fader. So you can drag a plug-in down below the fader, and that makes it post-fader. Oh, um, that's cool. Yeah, so, I mean, just a couple of subtle but super cool things that a few of our guys have sort of glommed onto. And once you learn a trick like that, you know, you can never change. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> So I guess that's that's who it is. You know, there's a there's a group of sort of techie guys. There's the guys that are looking for the analog sound uh, to do their mixes, and and that would I would say that most of those guys are really audio engineers. I mean, these are mixing and mastering type dudes. Well, you know, th there's a real need in the marketplace, or I should say, desire in the marketplace to replace uh, Pro Tools. People are getting fed up with the subscription. They don't feel like in the grand scheme of things, that Avid has kept up with the rest of the marketplace. And it wouldn't take much to have a lot of people switch. In post, it's different. In post, you know, that's pretty entrenched, and it's really difficult if you have a facility that has 200 seats of anything to get them to switch. But in music, it wouldn't take much at all to get a lot of that marketplace to switch. So I think now is a good time to actually be coming up with this. The 32C is pretty new, right? Yeah, 32C is, I guess, uh, maybe a little over a year old now. Okay. I've played with it, but I haven't played with it a lot, so I, I'm by no means an expert, and I, I don't have all that much insight into it. I'm going to get more, believe me, because I'm going to do some projects on it because I'm so interested in it, and it does sound so good. Cool. But yeah, right. that being said, you mentioned a couple of things that were unique to Mixbus, and, and one of them, of course, was the post-fader with the inserts. What's the other one you mentioned? Well, um, boy, you kind of put me on the spot. The other one I mentioned was uh, the way that the editor works. Uh, you know, in Pro Tools, if you, let's say you have one long take, you have a take of a, let's say it's a guitar take, you know, and now you want to go punch over the second half of a solo. So you you punch in on that section, and now you have another clip there through the second half of the solo. Right. Now, if you, if you, just theoretically, you know, if you grab that clip 
and you drag it a little bit to the left, then you'll see like a, a hole open up on the right side because you've sort of overwritten that, right? Yeah, yeah right. Um, and Mixbus is not alone in this, but I think we have one of the better implementations where we actually have sort of a stack of layers, just like in an image editing app, you can have you know, a black circle on top of red circle on top of a green circle, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And the edges of those circles are transparent. I mean, they're, they're, or they can be made transparent so that they sort of, they sort of blur into each other. You can see some of the, you know, some of the green one behind the red one and some of the black one behind that, right? So we've got these layers. So if you grab that clip and, and mix bus, a couple of things happen. Firstly, if you drag it and drag it left, you'll just uncover the previous take. So if you start to trim... Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, you start to trim, you're just sort of uncovering what was underneath there, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. So you can trim this thing. And then the cool bit is at the at the top and tail of every clip, there's a crossfade. And you can stretch or shrink that crossfade to crossfade under, into whatever is in the layer below that clip and it's even cooler than that because when you grab this clip and you drag it it becomes visibly transparent boy this is something where a podcast uh, yeah (laughs) Yeah, i could really show you something you know i could really show you something cool if we had a picture but um you when you drag this clip it becomes visibly transparent and you see the waveform below it so like if you're trying to to if you're trying to take a verse and paste it in where another verse was you can find like the snare drum transient and drag this thing forward and back until they literally stack visually. Like, the, you know, the, the the one underneath sort of disappears because the line of the waveform stacks on it. Yeah. Then you know you've got the timing exactly right. And it's just a really fast way to line stuff up and edit. And, and then you have these crossfades. So um, you can do some really cool stuff. For example... In Pro Tools, a, a cro- and in almost every DAW, a crossfade is sort of defined as the junction between two wave files. You know, this one ends and the next one begins. And now, how wide do you want to mix them? Yeah, right, right. Well, in Mixbus, every clip has a fade. Just like, you know, in, in Pro Tools and in Nuendo, everybody, they all have these fade handles where you can fade in and out at the end of a clip, right? Yeah. But in ours, that's actually a crossfade from whatever is below. So in normal day to day work, that's a fade in from silence. It oh. just, it's a crossfade from silence, so yeah. it just sounds like a fade in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you had some stuff under there, like imagine, imagine the case that you've painstakingly created this 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 series of drum hits, and now you want to you want to bring in something else. You can lay this layer, this this region, on the top layer on top of all those seventeen edits that you made, and and make a long fade, and you'll fade from. You know, underneath the long clip, there's these 17 little edits, and all that will play back, and then this will fade into it and take it over. That's awesome. I'm not sure I can do it justice. With yeah, a, yeah. Without no, a picture, I understand. I, I, I know really what you're cool. talking about. I understand. In the meantime, last question, Ben. It's a little off of the subject, but appropriate nonetheless. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or you learned along the way? Oh, man. Um, I suppose there's the old adage, you know, it's better to keep a customer than to uh, go find a new one. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's good, though. And yeah. I guess, I, you know, I mean, it, it's funny to say that, but that ties in perfectly with what I was talking about with the film guys. You know, we didn't want to lose those customers. That's why we, we 
didn't require we didn't make them buy a whole new console. Boy, the more I think about it, this is just a that was a great question. Boy, Bobby, you really nailed you really you gave me a softball. <laughs> because you know, there is a problem in today's culture where you use your iPhone a couple of years and you throw it away because there's one, you know, way better. Or Pro Tools is another great example. I mean, they they're pretty aggressive about making sure that you upgrade. <laughs> yes, they are. Yeah. Uh, to to even you know, otherwise it just stops working. And Harrison actually has a very long and very stable history of taking care of customers in a completely different way. You can literally go to Universal Studios today, and you will be sitting at knobs and faders that were there in 1990. That's 27, no, not 90. It hasn't been 27 years, but it's been a long darn time. Yeah. When did that console go in? That would have been... Uh, yeah, like 90, 94, I think. I'm not the guy to I'm not the guy to say because I wasn't there, but it was long before my time, and that board has been there for you know well uh, over 20 years now. Now it's been upgraded slightly, but they never had to make that big capital investment again. You know, we didn't make them take the whole thing out and put a new one in. Yeah, every five yeah, years. yeah. That's awesome. I think that is a very fundamental difference in the way maybe we do things. It is a different way to do business, but I think it's the right way. It's the way I prefer to do. <laughs> By the way, your tutorials are fantastic. Oh, thank you. I, I think they were sort of made for, I guess, sort of clued in people. We do get some requests. Hey, can't you just give me something really entry level? But we kind of took the approach that most people who buy a mix bus have probably already used a DAW, and they just want to know what's different, yeah. you know, and what's special, what's so I'm glad to hear you say that. You're actually the kind of person that we made those for, and I'm really glad to hear you say that. Yeah, I like the love. There is some entry-level stuff, but it's the right stuff, I think. And I was impressed. I, I didn't watch them all, but I watched enough of them to understand that, boy, that's going in the right direction for sure. To learn more about Harrison's mix bus, go to Harrison Consoles, all one word, harrisonconsoles.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time 